Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So sitting in the studio with me is Vin Baker. Uh, He's a full-time NBA All-Star, an Olympic gold medal winner. Uh, He's had a very distinguished uh, pro basketball career. That's over now. He's been through a lot of other things. He's been through a lot of changes. You know, it's funny, Vin, even just introducing you, I'm thinking, how do you think of yourself? I mean, when you think of Vin Baker, who am I? Do you think four-time NBA All-Star or do you think something else? Um, I, I definitely think four-time All-Star and Olympian, those are, those are things that you can never take away re- regardless of uh, what we go through in life. Those are accomplishments that um, were spectacular and amazing, and I was blessed and fortunate to be a part of it. So I never want to uh, discount that no matter what I've been through. It, they've they've been, been a part of me. Um, it's been a part of my growth to be an All-Star, be an Olympian, and also other things that have happened in my life. I'm a minister. I'm a father. Um, all those things have played important roles into my character and who I am now. Um, well, I want to talk about all of those uh, different things. Um, and But maybe we should just sort of begin with your story. I mean, very quickly, you grew you grew up in Old Saybrook, right? I did. I grew up in Old Saybrook. Old Saybrook actually went to elementary school there, and my, all of my schooling came there. Um, I enjoyed being in Old, Old Saybrook. I actually live there now. It's a great town. Um, I love the people there. Uh, my family's, my mom and dad have been there since the 60s. So uh, we are blue blood uh, old Saybrook Rams. And, uh, you know, just an awesome childhood. I grew up middle class and, and, and worked hard. My father was a minister. Uh, my mother worked from four to one uh, at Cheeseboro Pond. So just grew up in a working class house and uh, a spiritual house. Um, at what point was it clear that you were going to be very tall and very athletic? It it actually didn't come until I was about uh, my my senior year in high school. I was a late bloomer as far as even my height came late. I was six two as a freshman, and then six seven as a senior, and then six ten grew to be six ten from my senior year of high school to my freshman year at the University of Hartford. So my athletic prowess didn't really come until I was. 18, 19 mm-hmm. uh, years old when I kind of grew into my body and, and, and t- took off from there. So for that reason, I mean, a lot of the big basketball programs, they kind of didn't know who you were, didn't necessarily pursue you as you were heading into college. No, a, a lot of a lot of colleges didn't know. I think, the, ironically, the one, two of the other teams, University of Rhode Island, and believe it or not, um, Coach Calhoun kind of knew who I was because mm-hmm. I'd gone to his basketball camp uh, my junior year and my sophomore year, my junior year and my senior year, and I can remember Coach, Coach Calhoun coming over and sitting at one of my games with a trench coat on and a hat. So he kind of knew at the time who I was, but obviously wasn't prepared and ready for that level of basketball just yet. So you went to University of Hartford, and I mean, it's certainly no exaggeration to say that you're the best player who has ever played for the University of Hartford, although they've had other really good basketball players. Your jersey, I think, is is hanging up in the field house uh, now. Um, and, and so, 
but but I would imagine also University of Harvard was probably a pretty good bubble to realize that you were a standout basketball player. You weren't necessarily subjected to the crushing pressures that you would be at Kansas or someplace like that. Absolutely, um, it was it was a great place for me to develop as a kid, especially coming from Old Saybrook, such a small town. It was the perfect fit for me. If I had to do it all over again, uh, I wouldn't have chose anything different. The the, the university, the school, uh, the atmosphere there, the 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 coaching staff, everything was perfect. Coach Phelan was uh, – Jack Phelan and Paul Brazo were my two coaches there, but Coach Phelan in particular really helped me and molded me into be uh, really a really tough kid on the basketball court and along with my talent um, got me to the place I needed to be in 1993. You know, um, it w- I would imagine that might have been something that you had to work a little harder on than some people. I Actually, I, I don't expect you to remember this, but I met you while you were at University of Hartford, and even talking to you now over a brief period of time, you seem like a very nice person that by and large, you know, you're, you're, you're more gentle than you are mean. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you've got to discover some kind of toughness in yourself. If you're going to compete, particularly by, at the NBA level, you, you know, it's, it's him or you in a lot of situations. Yeah, absolutely. Did, did you have to learn that? No, I, 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 that really came from my mom and my dad. My mom and dad were very tough. Um, I, like I, I always tell everyone, I love my mom more than life, and she's the toughest person I know. She was very tough on me growing up and, you know, very competitive. But in a loving way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and then my dad is six seven. Uh, he's a minister. Very believes in what he believes in, and a tough man in, in his own right. So, it really came from my mom and my dad. So, I, I think the whole thing of being from Old Saber kind of glossed over um, who I am at the core, as far as my competitive nature mm-hmm. and how hard. So, it really wasn't something I had to adapt or change. It's just that. My coaching staff, in particular, Coach Phelan, really brought it out of me, and uh, and once he got it out of me, it stayed. Although I think also the jump that you made from there was a bigger jump than a lot of people make, right? Mm-hmm. If you'd gone from Kentucky to the Milwaukee Bucks, that would have been one thing. Going from University of Hartford to the Milwaukee Bucks is another thing, right? I mean, you yeah. were being introduced to a new world. Yeah, definitely. From from a basketball perspective, though, I think it's neat, and and I think. I can use this analogy now because we have a guy that kind of was a big fish in a small pond who's probably the best player in the entire world right now. And so my development, I wouldn't have changed it. I I, I said this, uh, I alluded to this earlier. I wouldn't have changed my, my, you know, my path because going to the University of Hartford as opposed to going to Kentucky or University of Connecticut, it allowed me to grow as a player. I could take the ball off the rim and dribble the basketball up the court and without being yelled at and without being told to get on the block, those those four years at the University of Hartford developed me into be the most skillful or one of the more skillful basketball players at my size in the entire world. So I wouldn't have changed it for the world to go to Kentucky and be recruited over every single waking minute of the day and not being allowed to be who I could become. Um, so I'm so grateful, and and like you look at Steph Curry, mm-hmm. he, he went to. He's Dave. the guy you were talking about. Right? That's who I was talking about, and 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 there's no way he got that confidence from Davidson. Who's to say if he'd have gone to Kentucky or Duke or where his brother went or any other bigger school, he would have developed that confidence like he has now. Um, were there ways in which the NBA was kind of a rude awakening, though? I mean, oh yeah, 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 of course, and I think a lot of it's well documented for me. I think. Um, for me, the off the court, um, mm-hmm. just the lifestyle itself. Growing up in Old Saybrook, and 
then ultimately going to the University of Hartford for my four years collegiately never prepared me for what the NBA offered um, personally and off the court, my private life, uh, which I I was ill-prepared for and and, and really ran into some tumultuous times um, based on the fact that I felt I was ill-prepared to deal with fame and fortune the way it came so fast for me. I mean, uh, does does anybody? I mean, maybe it's different now. We'll talk about that as we go along here. But when you, when you went up there, does anybody sort of stop and say, "Hey, before this gets going pretty fast, before the train starts moving really fast, here's some things you should know, either in terms of looking out for, after your money, or the kinds of people who are approaching you, or some of the pitfalls, some of the parties you'll be invited to." Is there anybody on an NBA team or within the league who kind of does that? I, I mean, there's times when they come when when there's situations where there may be some some red flags or some uh, fl- fires that they may they may need to put out. But initially, when you first get in the league, it, it's literally like hitting a lottery ticket. It's <laughs> it's imagine getting a lottery ticket and and you get a million bucks. Like you're not going to hear from advisors first. You're not going to hear from people who want to have your best interest. You're going to be look hear from the people who want something from you or want to. Uh, go into a different place to have fun, to party. So it's just like that in the NBA. It'd be neat and fun to say and and appropriate to say that, you know, there's there's things in place when you get all this money and you get this fame and you get this fortune and people always have your best interest. That's just not the case. And um, there's more places for pitfalls with that that kind of uh, lifestyle than there is for people to come out shining and saying, oh, I did 15 years and nothing ever happened. <laughs> well, you've got a whole bunch of things coming together at once, right? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you've got this money like you've never had money before. Mm-hmm. And your view of the world is more distorted than it's ever been. People are telling you you're great. People are screaming louder than they've ever screamed before. You're playing in front of bigger crowds than you've ever played before. And you're getting invited places that you would never have gotten invited under any other circumstances. You're hanging out with people you wouldn't have met under other circumstances. So any one of those Mm -hmm. could create a problem. Mm -hmm. The three of them stuck together, I would imagine, is a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. I mean, at some point for me, it was even being drafted the number eight pick in 1993 from the University of Hartford, and then going to a relatively small market. So I was still in this proving ground, even though I was the eighth pick of the draft in, in, in a lottery pick. Um, so I had the challenge of going and still trying to prove myself in the pros. And then on some hands, I was getting recognized because now all these accolades are coming and, and I'm, I'm being recognized for being one of the better players in the, in the, in the league and in the world. But I'm still trying to convince people. And so those are those are all kind of, uh, crazy situations that that come into play when you're trying to continue to develop and con- continue to try to hone your craft and become one of the best. Uh, we're talking to Vin Baker right now. Uh, he's a former NBA All Star, former Olympic gold medal winner, um, and uh, he's writing a book right now uh, about, in fact, his life and times and the things that he went through. So, I mean, it's just it's going to be in the book. It's a well documented thing. You started to have problems with alcohol. Was mm-hmm. that was that the first thing? Was that the first demon to kind of grab your leg was it the alcohol yeah definitely um i i really had no idea and concept it, it's been in my family for years um you know with 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 family members and of course if you have it in in, in your dna uh, at some point you have a chance to be exposed to becoming an alcoholic or being addicted 
And it was certainly in my personality, something that I didn't detect at the University of Hartford or earlier on in my career. But with the more success and, uh, you know, my first four years of the NBA, I was named to the All-Star team three times. I had uh, my own sneaker uh, by Brand Jordan, the Vindicator. I had (laughs) made at some point, you know, over $100 million in my first six or seven years. And I was ill-prepared to handle what this fame and fortune came with off the court. And so I handled my fame and fortune very irresponsibly. Um, I got away from the things that got me there, my spirituality, um, my trust and my faith and belief in God and what he's done for me, and started believing in my own hype. And it led me down a tumultuous, dark, dark path in which I'm blessed and fortunate to be out of now and, and seeing some light. Um one senses that you were a very serious alcoholic. Was it something, I mean, would you be sometimes drunk during a game? Did you ever play having consumed alcohol? I, I drank a lot of alcohol. Mm. Um, I, I think it's well documented. You know, they they didn't terminate my contract because I was a weekend warrior. Mm. Um, I, I'll just say that much. Um, you know, the alcohol really took a toll on my life. It really took... Uh, I detoured my career, um, and I, I was an absolute alcoholic. And, um, you know, it, it just got as dark as it could possibly be. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm blessed. Like I said, I'm blessed and fortunate today to, on April 17th of next year, I'll be five years sober, and um, I couldn't be any more happier spiritually and physically to be in that place. But, yeah, it was some dark, dark times, and uh, – it, I was a became a person I didn't know, um, you know, drinking every single night, um, being depressed, not knowing how to be a all star basketball player, an Olympic gold medalist, with all this fame and fortune, and not knowing how to tell someone, "Hey, I think I got an issue here," mm-hmm. and and that was that was a scary place to be because on one hand I had developed into be this super basketball player with uh, this enormous amount of talent. Um, but I also had this secret that I was also struggling with addiction to alcohol that I couldn't tell until ultimately um, it caught up to me with the Boston Celtics. And, and, and I think it's documented how that, that, that whole ordeal went down. Uh, we're talking to Vin Baker right now. Uh, by the way, and uh, speaking of anniversaries, another big anniversary. I think it was yesterday, right? June forty four. Yeah. Yes. Thank happy, you. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. So, um, somebody must have talked to you. Somebody must have said something to you. I mean, your family. Somebody must have said uh, along the way, "You're drinking a lot," or "We're worried," or you. You know, a, a, a lot of people. Uh, I'm sure were concerned, Colin. But I'll be honest with you, and in, in, in just being totally candid about mm-hmm. it when when you're making 14 million dollars a year mm-hmm. you either buy off the people who are saying something or you shut out the people who are saying something and most of the people who are saying want to say something are scared to remove themselves from the situation mm-hmm. because that uh, may cut them short financially and so a lot of people uh, didn't say anything where, where it was more about uh you know, and I did. Of course, I had my mom and my dad. They cared and um, and prayed and and had faith that 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 you know my 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 uh, addiction to alcohol would go away. But you know, I I think what I don't want to miss in 
in telling my story about mm-hmm. what I went through with the Celtics, I honestly feel like I'm happy that those things happened the way they did. You know, um, I think it's it made me who I am today. It made me uh, gave me more humility. It made me humble. Um, it put me into a space where I had to understand that I had to depend and trust in in the Lord more than I had been doing while I had all this money and had all this fame. So I, I'm grateful and thankful. And, and you know, you see athletes today, no matter if you still have it or don't have it, you know, athletes are going through things outside of basketball where they're close to losing their lives or they're losing their lives. And I, for me, it was a wake-up call. And mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't regret – there's certain things I regret as far as my family is concerned or uh, my career is concerned. But the lesson that I was taught mm-hmm. – and the lesson that I learned, I wouldn't change it for the world. How, how did you get sober? How, how was it? Meetings? Was it? How did you do it? People, there's somebody out there listening right now who's got a drinking problem, thinking, "Well, oh, Vin Baker did that. I could do that." How, how did you do it? When I, you know what it was? When I, I had to get in my own mind that I really wanted to stop mm-hmm. drinking. Now, I, I know that sounds, you know, uh, very simple to do, but. When I was putting things in front of my sobriety, in other words, when I when I was with the Celtics, and my idea was I got to stop drinking. I don't want to lose my contract. Mm-hmm. And for most people who have followed this story closely, you would think that $50 million or millions of dollars is enough to stop drinking. But mm-hmm. addiction is addiction. It doesn't – it doesn't um, – really doesn't matter who – or what level of person it attacks, once it's there, it's there. You could be broke, rich, wealthy, poor. When addiction is there, it's there. So I think the one, the number one thing for me was I really wanted to stop. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to uh, change my life from where it was um, after losing my house, losing my restaurant, and more importantly, losing my family, my children. It was time to stop, and, and I felt like, all the humility and all the things that I wanted to do for people and help people was going down the drain because I was, you know, totally engulfed in this selfish act of, of, of being drunk all the time. And so for me, it was, I need to stop to make a difference. And if I stop drinking, uh, I can make a difference, not only in my own life, that was the, the priority at the time, but I can make a difference in others' lives. And, and, and if at some point in your life, no matter if you're an alcoholic or and you succumb to addiction, at some point of your life, you want to have a purpose-driven life. And for me, it's helping people who uh, may be struggling with alcoholism and may be struggling for addiction. But first, got to want to do it for yourself. It, ha- it can't be for any other reason. It can't be for family, for relationships, for career it has to be because I want to stop to save my own life, and that's what started it for me. So is, did you just – so that that's step one, obviously, and I assume you poured everything down the sink that was in the house or whatever. But was did that was that enough, just wanting no. to do it? Yeah. Well, the first – the step for me was once I got it spiritually mm-hmm. and knew for a fact that I wanted to stop, the, the, the second step was to go and to check into a rehabilitation center mm-hmm. and – I went to a center um, here in Connecticut, and I only went there for a week. Now, I'd been to f- uh, facilities for months and came out and relapsed. But this particular, this last time, I had made it up in my mind and my spirit. Now, if I can just go 
get the physical part done, which mm-hmm. was to lay in the bed and be checked on 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 every hour, um, to make sure that I wouldn't suffer from a seizure um, or alcohol withdrawals. And once I got that part down physically, and a week later they told me I was able to walk out, and I never looked back. I said I'm not going back to depending on alcohol, but I had to get that piece done. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, I, I had made up in my mind at that point that I wasn't going back to to alcoholism. Um, why don't we take a break here and give you a chance to have a sip of water? Uh, and uh, we're talking to Vin Baker right now, the great basketball player. He's got many other things to talk about. He's working on a book right now. Uh, we'll take that break. We'll come right back. We're back with Vin Baker, four-time NBA All-Star, Olympic gold medal winner, so many other things. So, you know, when we left off there, we are talking about you just sort of kicking alcohol. Um, but my sense also is that religion is a big part of this story. I mean, even in the last thing you mm-hmm. said, you used the phrase purpose-driven life. Mm-hmm. We all know that comes from Rick Warren. Mm-hmm. Um, so your father's a, a Baptist minister. Uh, you're a minister now, mm-hmm. right? Yes, so, I am. So uh, what role did that play? In other words— um. Obviously, you, you got out of one week of rehab isn't going to fix you. You need some other things are going to fix you. When I when I after the one week of rehab, I went straight to the church. I knew that as much as addiction and alcoholism is a, a disease of the body and of the mind. I, I for me, I think the majority of it it's a disease of the spirit mm-hmm. and 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 uh, not being sound and being in a place where you can combat it spiritually. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things set up uh, from AA to, you know, obviously the, the, the facilities to go and rehab in. But for me, growing up in the church, I had to go back to my roots. I had to go back to trusting and believing in what I knew. That was, for me, not only just the sanctuary of the church, but that was the sanctuary of my family, my mother, my father, uh, my kids, my wife, um, going back to places where I knew I had uh, some safety nets to really work on my spirituality. So um, I was able to go to Union Theological Seminary and work on my my master's there, which I'm 12 credits away from receiving my master's in divinity. Um, I had an opportunity to really, I I went to the Abyssinian Baptist Church uh, in Harlem, um, one of the more prestigious Baptist churches in, in all of the country and world. And I was able to be mentored and, and, and sit for two and a half years under Dr. Calvin Butts III. Um, and I was the youth minister there. So I, I really had an opportunity to, as I was working on staying sober, mm-hmm. I was in almost this bulletproof <laughs> uh, setting where it, one of the things we talk about when you're trying to change your addictive habits and of course change from being an alcoholic is changing people places and things Mm -hmm. so going from where I was to being with Dr. Calvin Butts and being the youth minister at the Abyssinian Baptist Church and attending Union Seminary being on campus was drastic a drastic change for me spiritually and certainly um where I was in life and so that helped me tremendously to get a focus it's one thing for the ministry, for me, it was I wanted to tell my testimony because I think it's powerful. I think it can help to change lives. But I also have to be theologically sound and be in place where I'm just not all over the place. I have to have what's the reasons and what was the journey. And I think Union and, and Abyssinian and, of course, where I'm at, Full Gospel, 
where my father's the pastor, those three places helped me totally to get centered spiritually so I can I can tell a message about redemption spiritually. It is, you know, it's interesting. I, this, I've listened, regular listeners, listeners to the show be incredibly bored because I bring this up all the time. But, you know, uh, the words that are said in America by more people uh, in any given year, in any given week, is the Lord's Prayer, right? There's probably mm-hmm. nothing that's repeated mm-hmm. as many times by as many people mm-hmm. as the Lord's Prayer. And is that, no, that notice the notion of forgive us our trespasses. Mm-hmm. But it seems as though... Um, Trespass, of course, it means a lot of different things. It's, and it seems as though so much of that is uh, being able to have an environment where you can talk about what you do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that, that's it right there. And as you were, I, th- I thought I knew where you were going mm-hmm. on that. And that's one of the things when I first went back to my church and when I was um, able to minister down at Abyssinian is that one of the neat things that I knew is the church was probably the one place at, my, at that particular time four years ago that would listen to my story without being judgmental. Oh, he lost a hundred million dollars. Oh, he lost this. He lost that. Well, I knew that if I wanted any kind of redemptive power and any kind of redemptive support, the first place for me to go back, which I was accustomed to and knew about was going back to church and going back and being able to express and talk about and talk my way through, uh, while talking about my testimony, not being judged but strengthening me by strengthening other people saying, I've been through this, you can get through this. And it's well done. If you, you Google what um, I've been through and you see me standing here, mm-hmm. uh, it's funny because when I was at Abyssinian and, 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 and um, Dr. Butts talked to me about, you know, kind of curtailing some of the alcohol talk mm-hmm. and, and uh, in some of my my sermons, and I just was pouring out and pouring out, mm. you know, my testimony. And for me, it was saying that I'm in a different place as a minister because if I stand up and say the Lord and God and faith and believe and hope, if they go home and Google me and I've never mentioned this, then I'm not going to come off as being authentic. So it was a chance for me to not only tell the story, but also to tell how I came through this journey of being an NBA player all the way to being uh, a Baptist uh, youth minister. It must be hard also, though, to share some of these things. I mean, you're, you arrived here with a beautiful little daughter mm-hmm. in tow. She's over in our green room right mm-hmm. now. You know, on the one hand, I mean, you're about to write the book. You're going to have to lay some of this stuff down. You may be laying it out in a way, as you say, that's your side of the story. That's the way that you understand what happened as opposed to having that story get told about you. But even so, I mean, to go there, it's going to be hard, right? It's going to, it's, it must always be hard to have the people who love, particularly, particularly your kids, hear stories even from you about what happened. I, I It's true. And I, I've been so, I will say this, though, I've been so blessed and fortunate that my children um, have still showed me unconditional love and unconditional respect um, and not really have experienced a lot of it. Uh, that that, and if they have Googled it, and if their friends have said something about it, it really uh, doesn't have a huge play or huge role in our family. What my kids do see uh, is a father who works hard and who takes it to the max every day to support them uh, financially and support them as any other father would. So there are moments that we have these conversations about my past and some of the things that they may have heard. 
But fortunately for me, because of the space I'm in spiritually and now being going into my fifth year sobriety, they're all teaching points. They're all points where my kids can grow from. And I have some amazing kids who I kind of look at my situation and they say, Dad, I'll take the the MBA. I'll take uh, the University of Hartford and I kind of know where not to go here. So I'm I'm very bl- not that this won't happen, but we certainly are in a place of learning and growing spiritually where we can kind of uh, prevent it from 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 at this point. This is probably one of your least favorite things to think about. Um, but I think one of the things when people hear your story, they for people who just are living kind of average lives, they think, how do you go through 100 or 115 million dollars? I mean, most people can't figure out how to do that, right? I'm sure you get that. Like, I wouldn't even know how to go through 115 million dollars. Yeah, it's it's hard to fathom. Um, it's much more in perspective now because I've changed my life. But here, here's here's how to think about it if you're looking at it from that point. If you make fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars, and that is your lifestyle, and if you just thrust fifty million cash on someone, you'd be like, "I'd never spend this." That's because you've been living from thirty to seventy, <laughs> and so when you, it's all relative. If you have a million, you'll you'll assume that you can spend a half a million of it, and then you'll assume that you can have an entourage, and you'll assume you can buy this house and that house, and you spend it, and add to that an addiction. Uh, to alcohol, it's a recipe for going broke. It's mm-hmm. it's not mystical. It's it's <laughs> I'm I'm not the inventor of the will of someone who's been given a lot of money and uh, a lot of fame and fortune and have run into financial issues just not being responsible. Those people who make fifty to sixty seventy thousand bucks uh, a year, they know every dime and they're very meticulous about how they how they spend. They kind of know it's the world they live in. You don't walk on a, a, a car lot with Lamborghinis if you make fifty or sixty thousand. Mm-hmm. You just kind of know it. But when you have a thirteen million dollar a year contract, you get really stupid and buy things that aren't necessary. And mm-hmm. and you 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 party and you hang out with people and you give money out. And so if you start adding it up and you get your contract gets terminated there's a way it it happens. Now, it might not make sense, and people might not be happy about it, and people might say you fool, but at some point it happens based on the lifestyles and the choices that we make. And again, I'm not the first athlete um, who's been in that situation. But I want to be the first athlete to uh, say that you can grow and learn and and you uh, you can bounce back and you can have a productive life. And everything doesn't depend on, I've learned that everything doesn't boil down to uh, being wealthy and having the biggest houses and being having the biggest cars. It boils down to what type of person you are and what kind of effect do you want to have on your kids and just society in general. I, I don't think I was the best person that I could possibly be when I was making $13 million a year. I like myself now as a person mm-hmm. than I did then. Um, I would love to have that money uh, with this attitude, but I don't know if they live in the same, and they and if they could possibly live in the same person. You know, I know that you've been brought into contact with young NBA players, and it continues to happen. I think Jason Kidd had you mm-hmm. go to the Milwaukee Bucks uh, summer program in, in Vegas. Uh, obviously, you've got some very useful things to tell people about how to post somebody up, mm-hmm. but I would imagine you have even more useful things to say to a young player. 
I mean, you're talking about thirteen million dollar contracts. The contracts today are bigger than that, right? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. what do you say to people? What do you what do you say to you young players? Sign I, that kind of a deal. I I think the the number one thing I try to talk to them, and I, and I don't really get in that much of an opportunity to, and the opportunity I do get, I really don't want to be the old guy who right. lost it all, who yeah. comes in. <laughs> it, it just you yeah. lose that point quickly if right. you're talking to five guys who are making. $13 million a year because mm-hmm. I, I was there before and I saw the old guy come in. So I just try to tell the guys to stay grounded spiritually, to respect their craft. Um, there's things that they're going to see making that kind of money. And, and like you alluded to, the money's much more now. Like $100 million now is is, is not as what it was when mm-hmm. I played, and that's just 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I just try to tell the guys to be grounded in their craft, uh, grounded uh, spiritually, keep their family members close to them, um, and, and and just try to stay in that place of being competitive. My voice, though, my one voice, um, and what I'm going to try to do with this book and, 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 and speaking with more schools and, and, and more professional teams is to try to have it happen every single day. Like, it's got to be repetitive. You've got to have this conversation more than once. Because me going against 364 days, 365 days of the year, you really don't. It's 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 really hard to convince young men who are making that kind of money to stay in this lane. Mm-hmm. Um, because the first thing when you walk through the door is they say, "Well, that's not going to be me." Yeah, because that's <laughs> what I said in 1993 <laughs> when when that player came in that had lost it all. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I make more money than you. That's not going to be me. Mm. And and so I try to be realistic and not be the guy uh, that 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 that's not going to be me guy. Mm. It doesn't have to be you, but mm. here are the steps that you probably should take um, off the court financially with your advisors and certainly with your personal life. And I would assume that one of those steps, if you could get their attention, if you could get past that point of that's not going to be me, this is the old guy showing up is, you know, it's kind of like what you said before, that you and I, with the money that we make right now, we don't, not only do we not go Lamborghini shopping, but we don't turn our finances really over to anybody else in a way right. that takes them completely out of our sight, right. right? Like, I know how much money I make. I know where my money's going. I don't have so I make public radio money, you know? Right. So, um, and that would make sense for an NBA player, too. I mean, that notion that it, you rise to a certain level and then you turn it over to somebody yeah. else. That Actually, I have less to lose <laughs> than somebody making $100 million. No, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, and, and you make broadcasts. Now, my checks are less than yours, so I know exactly where my Starbucks money goes every <laughs> single week. And so it, it is about that. It's about making it and being responsible for what you do with it uh, and just having your checkbook in your hand. And it's different. You make money different. You're, one day you're 19 and you're going and asking for 100 bucks to get takeout. And then within months, you have an $80 million deal. So it, it's, it's, there's some, a gap there. I think the NBA can, can do more as far as helping these young men adjust uh, to the lifestyle. Um, but it's a lot to take in. And, and I hope I can play a small part uh, from my from my story, um, and I hope I can play a small part in helping these guys realize uh, who they are once they, you know, you look at the LeBron James of the world and Kevin Durant. These guys are not only players, but they've turned into corporations. And I, I hope uh, from their part and, and me doing my small part, we can educate these young men to 
uh, continue to be great basketball players, but be great businessmen as well. Oh, we're talking to Vinny Baker. We're going to give him a chance to take a break, uh, grab a sip of water. We have one more segment coming up here, so stay with us. Vin Baker was lucky to retire from the NBA when he did. Now you have to write a poem. Today's show was produced by Katie Talarski and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Dan Schultz and Sarah Flaherty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Hawthorne Wingo. For show pages, articles, and videos of the here and now staff dunking on the On Point staff, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose reacts to the week in culture. And now, back to Colin. We're back. We're back with Vin Baker, uh, four-time NBA All-Star, Olympic gold medal winner. Uh, we've been talking about basketball. We've been talking about Christianity. We haven't talked too much uh, uh, about coffee, but I want to talk about coffee now. <laughs> um, you're working at uh, Starbucks. But my understanding is that one reason you're working at Starbucks is that Howard Schultz himself has taken an interest in you. Yeah, I, I have a, a really good relationship with Howard. Um, once I got out of rehab, uh, four and a half years ago, probably nine months in my to my sobriety, um, I reached out to Howard and I had a Howard. The history of that is Howard owned the Sonics. I bought the Sonics my second year into my contract, and my second or third year in Seattle, he brought bought the team, and I actually developed a great relationship with him, uh, like a very personal and private relationship with him. And uh, when I was traded to Boston. Uh, you know, that was a tough time because I did have a, a really good relationship with him and his family, uh, Mrs. Schultz, Sherry Schultz, and, and Jordan and Natty. And so I reached out to him uh, maybe a, nine months into my sobriety and said, I, I need to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sobriety is amazing, and I'm, I'm in a great place spiritually. And, and it was interesting because on the phone that particular day when I spoke to him, his, the very first thing that he said, he said, you sound great. Like he had a connection to me right away, and and uh, you know we we met probably about three or four months later in New York, and he had ideas for me and and what I should do. One of them was to uh, go to work with Dr. Butts at Abyssinian uh, in New York. So I did that. Um, after I I spent time there in New York with Dr. Butts and Abyssinian, um, I reached out and said you know talked about the next level of it and the the conversation came up, what about retail? Mm. And, of course, I was just happy to, I mean, if you're talking to Howard himself mm. and to the people that um, are with Starbucks, it was just a great opportunity. I did not know when we I committed to this how hard the job was going <laughs> to be. I didn't know that everyone customizes drinks and that working at Starbucks wasn't the easiest job. But it's been it's been great. Uh, I have the intestinal fortitude and, and the courage. I'm up for the challenge, but it's just been a great opportunity for me. Um, it balances me as far as going to work every day. I'm co-managing um, in East Lime mm-hmm. right now with uh, another manager there, and I'm learning so much about business, things that I wouldn't have learned. I talked to Charles Smith, uh, the former Nick, yeah. last week, and he we were talking about it, and he said, I don't really think you understand. 
you were getting a business degree and you're being paid for it. And this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so he kept, it was an encouragement that I kind of needed at the time. Um, I've been there since June and I thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I, I enjoy working uh, with the people there uh, at Starbucks and I enjoy learning the company and the business. It's a tremendous opportunity that I've been given and mm -hmm. one that I don't want to squander. Mm -hmm. um, I want to continue to get better at it and continue to learn the business. Um, I'm probably at 15 drinks out of 90 right now, so I've got some more <laughs> to work on. Uh, what's your position on the red cups? The red cups okay the, for? Uh, I don't. I, listen, I don't. I don't. I don't have a, a position. Comes on down that. from corporate. That, yeah, that's right, listen. You know, yeah, I, I haven't. I haven't worked long enough to make it's any above decision. Above your pay grade. That's a. That's a. That's exactly what I've told a couple couple customers. That's that's above my um, pay grade. And we're running out of time here. A couple of few things I wanted to ask you about. Now, about a year ago, uh, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, um, you made the trip to North Korea, right? With yes, I did make that trip uh, with with Dennis and with Charles, and uh, it was in hindsight, which is twenty twenty for all of us. I I wouldn't have gone. Yeah. I, I didn't realize the impact, the negative impact that it would have on us, and certainly. Mm -hmm. Uh, we we didn't have any idea what we were doing. It was it was spoken to us about basketball diplomacy, and obviously it it, it didn't um, come out that way. But it was another lesson learned. Um, I, I I um I I wish Dennis and, and all those guys the best. It was a lesson learned for me. But I, fortunately, I was able to come back and get back on track. How does it how does how does it feel playing at your age? And I mean, can you? I mean, I don't know. Like, my knees hurt a lot. I mean, uh, can you get out on the court and feel okay? I, I can play. I don't have any real ailments as far as my body's concerned. I think I think the, the biggest thing for me is one of the reasons I really don't play, it's, it's the worst. It's almost like a curse that be good at one point <laughs> and then absolutely be average at a certain, another point <laughs> in your life. It's the worst feeling in the world to go out and see exactly what you want to do. Mm but not be able to execute it. So, And everyone talk trash to you because now they're beating the old Ben Baker. <laughs> so I want to ask you, I think this is sort of a thing you don't get to talk about this much and uh, that much. And, and with the book, it's probably not going to be as big a part of the book as it could be. But you must have some amazingly happy, wonderful, terrific memories about being an NBA player. Was like, Are there one or two moments on the court where – I don't know, either you dunked on somebody or do you have like sort of favorite moments you look back and go, that was great. I, I so enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I had I think playing for Seattle was amazing. We were 61 and 21 and uh, playing with George, George Call and, and winning for the very first time, like winning significantly for the very first time in my life. Um, I think having a relationship, having a, a contract with a brand Jordan, having a relationship with Michael, which is really not that documented, but I was kind of one of the first guys to wear my own signature Jordan shoe and having that relationship with Michael and him having the respect and, and, and love for my game that he did mm -hmm. at that time of my career is all will always be special to me. Like anytime my kids will ask and be able to Google about anything, the one thing that sticks out in their mind is like, Dad, you had your own sneaker mm -hmm. for Michael Jordan? So I, I think those times and, and having those relationships with – those players again you it's just like a, a an education and a degree there's certain things you just can't take away and and what i those moments in my career beating the bulls one night in key arena after um i, I had dinner with michael and scotty the night before and they talked so much trash to me about being in seattle how i would never win anything 
And then the very next night we played them and beating them with a game winner. It's just though, and playing in the Olympics uh, with 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 uh, Gary Payton and Garnett and Duncan, Ray Allen, all all the guys. Um, I think I miss those times. Again, they built a lot of character, and uh, I miss the only thing I miss about the NBA is the competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I get that in two K now. I can play t- my son in two K, so I'm I'm okay with that. You know, you, you mentioned the beating the Bulls, uh, uh, and did, did you hit the game winner in that? I did. Yeah, I hit a I hit a baseline jump shot right in front of the bench, and uh, it was one of my it was a special special night. Uh, I probably played that portion of the video over at least a thousand times, <laughs> at least. It's like that Troy Aikman commercial. You know, yes, the one where like ex- I'm, I'm living in the past. It turns out to be his, his, exactly. his ringtone. Exactly. That's that's exactly. Uh, my my kids laugh at me because I they they always look at me like, Dad, you showed this to us uh, at least a hundred <laughs> times. Um, what feels better, scoring or blocking somebody else's shot? Blocking, say, a, a Jordan shot or something. Scoring, scoring, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Hitting a game winner, or just having someone in, or being in the zone where no one can stop you—that's that's it's one of the feelings you just can't replace. Can you enjoy basketball now, just watching it? Do you watch NBA games? I do. I I always talk to people about watching the game. There's different nuances and different things I see in the game. Mm-hmm. The personality of the game. It's just not the the fun part about playing in the pros is that you can see beyond the score. You can mm. see the personality of the game. You can see the personality of teams beyond their stars, beyond what you see, what they, what kind of people push at you, what they want you to see. Like LeBron's great and Kevin Durant's great. But for me, having played the game, I can kind of see when LeBron hasn't won a championship and, and know what went into that and what goes into Oklahoma City not being as good as their two great players. So – I think that's a fun part of being able to watch the game and enjoy it. Yeah. Some people are saying now that the Golden State Warriors might be as good a team as has taken the court, as good as those classic Bulls teams. Well, I, I, I'm not one of those b- bitter old school players <laughs> to say the game isn't isn't as what it was before. I'm just not like that. I think there's talent. Obviously, LeBron James and Kevin Durant and S- Steph Curry could have played in any era of basketball. I do, however, believe – that the teams of old, the Chicago Bulls, even the Lakers, the Magic Johnson Lakers, the Larry Bird, I, I think any historian of basketball who really uh, is an aficionado of the game would be find it hard-pressed to think that the Warriors of today could, could beat uh, the Lakers and the Bulls and the Celtics in a seven-game series. It's my opinion, mm-hmm. and, and we're all entitled to them. I, I think those teams were special in their own right historically special I think the Golden State Warriors will have a chance to be historically special Um, but for the eye test for me I think I'd go with Magic uh, Michael and and Larry so um, 10 years from now um, you could be the pastor of a church you could be an executive with Starbucks you could be working somewhere in the NBA either as a coach or in for the league or something like that which of those alternatives appeals to you the most uh, I think, or, or or a fourth one that I didn't name. You know, I think being a pastor, uh, I think the influence there uh, would be more relevant. I'd, I'd, I'd have a chance to really change lives. I think there's a portion of basketball and a portion of being an executive at Starbucks that kind of stops uh, after the job stops. But mm-hmm. I think as being a pastor of a church that you can have an everlasting, eternal 
place on somebody's life and that's that's what I'm shooting for that's that's what keeps me going is having that eternal and and, and, and everlasting uh, place in somebody's mind or, or or some kind of influence in in their life and I think from being a pastor but I'm going to try for all three. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you'd be okay. You'd be comfortable with the idea of maybe going back to the NBA as a coach, as a front office guy, as something. Absolutely. Well, this this past year, I've been able to work. I've been fortunate and blessed enough to work with the Bucks. I've worked with the Knicks. I do alumni work with them. Um, and I also, you know, again, I'm I'm currently store managing uh, with Starbucks. And I'm, I just preached this past uh, Sunday at my father's church. So... I'm handling it now from this level. Um, I don't. I don't know what it what that would entail ten years from now, but I feel comfortable handling it. I think they all kind of serve the same purpose: is is helping people at the end of the day. And it could be argued too that as big an impact as a pastor can have, and that's big, is that somebody who takes those values and and exhibits them in a different kind of in a different context. You know that that. That having all of the beliefs, having the faith that you have and and the way that the faith gets lived out in your life, doing that while working for Starbucks, doing that yes. by, while working for the Milwaukee Bucks mm-hmm. or whatever, you, you'd be you're injecting yourself into that environment right. in a way that it's not expected. In some ways, that can almost be a, a bigger thing. It, absolutely. It, it's it's certainly when when my when I preach on Sundays or teach on Wednesday nights at my father's church, it certainly helps that I can share five to six caramel macchiato stories <laughs> with 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 my um with my congregation it just all fits it it's it's a it's a place of humility it's a place of faith it's a place of belief um and and i think people identify i think people identify from where i'm where i'm coming from as far as talking about the church and talking about i'm working and i was in milwaukee and i was working with these kids mm-hmm. and when you combine it all yeah. it 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 all helps the the, the ministry I think that's in Matthew 11 is the parable of the caramel macchiato. Um, <laughs> all right. We have to stop, Vin Baker, but it's been great visiting with you, and it's a great story. We look forward uh, to the book when that's done. Thanks for coming up here today. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 